Today I'm going to be talking about the second verse of Sri Arunachakshramulai, and that was Sadhuam singing that uh, verse and the refrain. Uh, what Bhagavan says in this verse, Arahusandaram bol ahamumni yamutrabhinama irupom Arunachala. That means, Arunachala, like Arahu and Sundaram, may you and I uniting be non-different. Um, Arahu and Sundaram are two words that uh, mean the same thing. Um, so like Arahu and Sundaram means, implies two, two identical things. You, may you and I uniting be completely non-different. Um, there are several alternative meanings for this. One is, I, I will explain in more detail later, that is the verb irupom can be taken to mean either may you and I, or, 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 or may we be, or it can be taken to mean we are, uh, either way. So one alternative meaning is, Arunachala, like Arahu and Sundaram, I and you will always be, or always are, completely non-different. And Arahu and Sundaram are not only two words that have the same meaning, namely beauty, um, they also happen to be the names of Bhagavan's mother and father, respectively. So uh, another meaning is Arunachala, um, like Arahu, my mother, and Sundra, my father, may I and you uniting be completely non-different. Um, while explaining the meaning of this verse, there's one Tamil word that I'll often use, namely poral. Poral is a is, is a word that Bhagavan uses a lot in Tamil. Um, Poral is more or less equivalent to the Sanskrit word vastu. Uh, its basic meaning is substance. For example, um, th that is in, in Advaita, um, a distinction is made between substance and form. The substance is real, the form is just a temporary appearance. For example, um, if you have a number of gold ornaments, their forms are different. They may be necklaces, bangles, rings, um, tiaras, crowns, whatever, um, but their substance is one. The, the forms are only temporary because what is, a, what is a necklace one day can next day be melted and made into a ring or a bangle or something else. So the forms are temporary. What is real is the substance. The Tamil word for substance in this context is poral. It is the equivalent of the Sanskrit term bastu. So um, Bhagavan often referred to 
our real nature or the absolute reality as poral, sometimes as meporal, which means the, the real substance, or ulaporal, the existing substance, which are equivalent to the Sanskrit term satvastu. Um, so, so, as I say, the basic meaning of poral is substance. It also, in Tamil, poral is a term that means meaning, in the sense of the poral of a word is its meaning. Uh, for example, in verse 21 of Upadesha Undia, uh, in the previous verse, Bhagavan had, uh, had said, when ego dies, uh, one thing will shine forth as I am I. Then in verse 21, he says, that is always uh, the, the poral, uh, the true meaning or import of the word I. Nanenubsop uh, poral. Uh, the meaning of the word I, the import of the word I, is, um, is, is that. Because of our, um, because though I, meaning ego, is absent in sleep, we do not cease to exist. So, uh, as I say, the basic meaning of poral is substance, but the substance of a word is its meaning. That is, supposing we hear a word of some foreign language that we don't know, it is just a sound, or if we see it written, it's just some, some squiggles on the... Uh, um, on the paper. For us, it has no substance, it has no meaning. But if we know the language, we know that the, that particular sound, what it signifies, what it, what it, its substance is its meaning. So the, the, the substance of any word is its meaning. So the substance of Arahu and Sundaram is one, because they both mean uh, beauty. Uh, Arahu is a Tamil word, and Sundaram is a Sanskrit word. And as I say, also, Arahu happens to be the name of Bhagavan's mother, and Sundaram the name of his father. So this, uh, this analogy has, has two significances. One is that the, the principal significance is Arahu and Sundaram are two words that have the same quarrel or meaning or substance. And also Arahu and Sundram are uh, uh, Bhagavan's mother and father. So, like Arahu and Sundram, may you and I uniting be completely non-different. That is, the, though Arahu and Sundram are different in their form, they sound different, when they're written they look different, but their substance, their meaning, is the same. Likewise, may you and I, though outwardly our forms may be different, maybe you and I be one uh, completely non-different in substance, is the implication. Um, to understand the verses of Akshramlai, to understand the full depth of um, the verses of Akshramlai, we need to understand them in the context of Bhagavan's teachings as a whole. So often we can understand the meaning of these verses more deeply if we consider them in the light of, um, of other works, other, other verses that Bhagavan has written. So um, two, there are two verses in Upadesha India that are particularly relevant to consider in connection with this verse. That is just like the poral or the substance or meaning of Arahu and Sundaram is one. 
in verse 24 of Upadeshundia, Bhagavan says the poral or substance of God and soul is one, even though they differ in their external form and appearance. So what he says in verse 24 of Upadeshundia is, Irakum ekayal isa jivagal oru porale ava upadi unave veru. What that means is, by existing nature, that is in their real nature of just being, God and soul are just one substance. Only adjunct awareness is different. Um, that is, the, the, the substance, the, the, the reality of both God and soul is uh, what he referred to in the previous verse of Upadesha India, verse 23, as Uludu, what actually exists, which is Unavu, what, uh, awareness. Um, and that awareness is we, he said in the pre. So our, our, our real nature, which is just pure being and pure awareness, in our real nature, which is just pure being and pure awareness, we and God are one substance. Um, what makes us seem different from God is upadi unavu. Upadi unavu means awareness of adjuncts. That is now, because we are aware of ourselves. that is the, the substance that is common to God and soul is that fundamental awareness I am, pure awareness, uh, pure awareness of our own existence. So I am is, the, is, the, is what Bhagavan refers to here as poral. The upadis means adjuncts. Now, when we rise as ego, we are not we are aware of ourselves as I am, but we're not aware of ourselves as just I am. We're aware of ourselves as I am such and such a person, I am this body. Uh, so this this body, the, the bundle of five she's that make up the person we seem to be, that is the uh, that is the set of adjuncts that seemingly separate ourselves from God. So long as we know ourselves as I am this body. We, no, we are not aware of ourselves as we actually are, because what we actually are is the one infinite and indivisible pure awareness I am, which is what God is. Um, and because we're aware of ourselves as a set of adjuncts, we're also, we also have a certain conception of God. And so God is also, in our view, a set of adjuncts. But the adjuncts exist only in our view, not in God's view. In God, God is aware of himself as just that pure awareness, I am. He is aware of himself as I am I. Or as it said in the Bible, but, but what Bhagavan often used to point out in the Bible, I am that I am. God is nothing but that I, what is shining in us as I am. And he's not aware of himself as anything other than I am. So to know ourselves as God, we need to know ourselves as just I am, not as I am, I am such and such a person, I am Michael or whoever. Um, so by virtue of our existing nature, I am, we and Arunachala, Jiva and Shiva, are always one substance, just like Arahu and Sundaram. But to see ourselves as such, we need to see ourselves without adjuncts. So in the next verse, verse 25 of Upadesha India, he says, Tane upadi bittu overdu tan isan tane unuvadam. That means knowing oneself 
leaving aside or without adjuncts is itself knowing God. So if we know now, now we know ourselves as I am this body, I am such and such a person. If we know ourselves without these adjuncts, in other words, if we know ourselves as just I am, that is knowing God. And then he ends this verse by saying, Tane, uh, uh, sorry, um, he says, Tanai Olivadal. Uh, that literally means because of shining as oneself. That implies because God is what shines as oneself. Since God is what shines as oneself, that is as I am, if we know ourselves without any adjuncts, that is knowing God. So knowing ourselves without any adjuncts means being aware of ourselves as we actually are. And to be aware of ourselves as we actually are, we require all-consuming love to turn within. Why is all-consuming love required? Because we cannot know ourselves without give, thereby giving up our false identity and everything that goes along with our false identity. So all the, the entire world appears only when we rise as ego. It's only in the view of ego that world seems to exist. So you know, if we know ourselves as we actually are, ego will thereby be destroyed. The world will thereby be ceased cease to exist along with ego. So we must be willing to give up everything. So in order to follow this path of self-investigation, we need all-consuming love. Um, that is why Bhagavan's path is, the, is, is bhakti in its truest and deepest sense. This is the true path of bhakti. That is the, the greatest love is... Love is not about what we can get from the one we love. It's about what we can give to the one we love. So the, the, the purest form of love is complete self-surrender, when we give ourselves wholly to the one we love. So if we truly love God, we should be willing to give ourselves wholly to him. And we can give ourselves wholly to him only by investigating ourselves, because the nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish by attending to anything other than itself, and to subside and dissolve back into its source by attending to itself. That is why Bhagavan says in the 13th paragraph, the first sentence of the 13th paragraph of, of Nana, Arma chintane tabira, vera chintane kalamba vatiku, satram idum kodamal, apmanishta paranai irpade, tane isanaku alipadam. That means being as Atmanishta Param, one who is firmly established as oneself, giving not even the slightest room to the rising of any thought other than Atmachintana, that literally means thought of oneself or self-attentiveness, is giving oneself to God. So only when we are so keenly self-attentive that we thereby give no room to the rising of any other thoughts are we truly giving ourselves to God. So for this, we need all-consuming love. And such love is possible only by the grace of Aranachala, who is our own real nature. Why is that love possible only by the grace of Aranachala? Because Aranachala is our own real nature. Our real nature is infinite love, because it is our nature to love ourselves. So long as we are aware of ourselves as I am this person, our love is limited. 
we love this person more than we love any other person because this person, I am this person. So because of our love for ourselves, we love whatever person we seem to be. So such love is, is uh, limited and uh, imperfect. But perfect love is infinite love. When we know ourselves as we actually are, we will know that we are the one infinite whole. So there's nothing other than ourselves. So we will, that is the state of the Bhagavan describes in verse 5 of Arunacha Pancharatnam as Anya Mil Ambu, uh, otherless love. So when, when, we, when we know ourselves as that which alone exists, we, we will then love everything as ourselves because we will know everything as ourselves. We will not be aware of any differences. That is what he's praying for in this verse. Uh, uh, Abhinamai irupom, let us be non-different. So in that state of, only in that state of complete non-difference is love perfect. So uh, Aranhatcha is the infinite ocean of Anyamil Ambu, of otherless love. So um, since, as such, Aranhatcha is the source of all love. So in order to uh, gain the love that is required to turn within, and surrender ourselves wholly to him, that love is possible only by his grace. And what is called the grace of Arunachala is nothing but his love. That is, because he, the nature of Arunachala is pure being. Arunachala doesn't actually do anything. But because his nature is pure love, in our experience, that we experience his love for us as grace. And his grace is uncaused, without any cause, because it is very nature. So it's the very nature of Arunachra to be gracious. So Arunachra is always willing to give us that love, but we must be willing to accept it. So long as we have so much desire to go outwards, we, we, we are denying the love that is ever-present in our heart, the love to turn within. But the more we yield ourselves to that love by turning within, the more that love will, will, uh, will manifest clearly in our heart. So that all-consuming love can come only from Arunachala. And since Arunachala is shining within us as I am, to the extent to which we turn within and attend to I am, to that extent will that, will that love um, Will that love rise and take rise within our heart and take over, occupy our whole heart? Um, so uh, this this second verse, it, I will explain it. Actually, can be interpreted in different ways. But, but what one of the, the, the meaning that is most applicable to us is it, we can take it as a prayer. He's, we are praying to our natural. Like Arahu and Sundram, may you and I be completely non-different. So uh, it's a prayer because it's only by the grace of our nature that we can get the love to turn within and thereby experience ourselves as non-different. Um, so, like the oneness uh, and non or non-difference of Arahu and Sundram, the oneness of ourself and our nature named Jiva and Shiva, uh, is eternal, immutable, unconditional, and complete. The significance of the word complete will become clear later because um, 
there's an alternative way of splitting the word verse. So the word complete is also in this verse. Completely non-different is another meaning. Um, so since, it, since that oneness, since our, the non-difference of Aaron, just like the non-difference of Arahu and Sundaram, but the non-difference of Jiva and Shiva is, is eternal, immutable, and unconditional and complete. So it's not a oneness that needs to be forged or created by an act of, unite, of uniting, but a oneness that needs to be discovered by investigation. That is, we are always one with Aranachala, uh, but we seem to be separate because we have risen as ego and we are therefore a, uh, aware of ourselves as a set of adjuncts. I am this body, I am such and such a person. So, it, though we are always one with Aranachala, we now seem to be something separate. So, we, we can become one with Aranachala or regain our oneness with Aranachala only by investigating ourselves and seeing that we are always one with Aranachala. And to investigate ourselves, we need to look deep within ourselves to see what we actually are. So since we and Aranachala are always one and completely non-different, like Arahu and Sundram, our seeming separation or individuality is just an illusory appearance and therefore entirely unreal. Um, in this context, the word utru means joining or uniting. But though Bhagavan uses this word utru, it is not intended to imply that we are ever actually separate or distinct from our natural. We are, though we are never actually anything other than our natural, when we rise as ego or jiva, we seem to be separate because instead of being aware of ourselves as just I am, which is the real nature or swarupa of our natural, we are aware of ourselves as I am this body. This body, which is a form composed of five sheaths, namely the physical body, life, mind, intellect, and will, is a set of adjuncts. So this is what Bhagavan referred to in um, the above two verses of Upadesh Undia, that is uh, verses 25 and 24 and 25, the two verses I spoke about, uh, he refers to this set of adjuncts as Upadi, that, um, uh, the, the, these five set of five sheaves, these are the set of adjuncts or Upadi that he's referring to. And, and hence our awareness of ourselves as I am this body is what he describes in verse 24 as upadi unavu, adjunct awareness. Um, therefore, what he implies in verse 24 is that this false awareness, I am this body, alone is what makes us seem to be separate from or other than our natural, who is not only God and Guru, but also our own real nature, Atmaswarupa. As long as we are aware of ourselves as a body, which is a form composed of five sheaths, we cannot know or conceive of a god or Aranatra as anything other than a form. As Bhagavan points out in the first sentence of verse four of Uludunapdu, what he says in that verse is in the first sentence, Uruvum Tanayin Uluhu Param Atram. That means if oneself is a form, the world in God will be likewise. 
In other words, if we are a form, the world, if we know ourselves as a form, we can only know God as a form, and God and the world as forms. Even if we believe, as many people do, that God is formless, our very idea that he is formless is just an idea. And ideas are just mental forms. So even our concept of God or our belief in God as something formless is itself a form. So we, can, so we, we cannot know him as formless uh, so long as we know ourselves as a form. In order to know him as formless, we need to know ourselves as formless, um, which means knowing ourselves without any adjuncts, because the adjuncts of a form that we now take ourselves to be. Um, so in the second sentence of this um, uh, verse 4 of Urudnapadu, he says, Uruvum tan andrel, uvatrin uruvatei, kan urudal yavan evan, which means if oneself is not a form, who can see their forms and how to do so? So if you want to know God as formless, we need to know ourselves as formless. And to know ourselves as formless, we need to know ourselves without adjuncts by looking deep within. So long as we are aware of ourselves as a set of adjuncts, we will inevitably conceive of God as another set of adjuncts. Um, that is, once we know ourselves, when we know, limit ourselves as a form, we, whatever conception of God we have will be something limited. So it is a form of one kind or another. So we, we, whatever be our conception of God, that conception of God is, uh, is a set of adjuncts. For example, um, generally theists believe that God is all-knowing, all-loving, and all-powerful. So the, these attributes of being of omniscience, omnibenevolence and omnipotence, these are adjuncts. Um, so what Bhagavan describes in verse 24 of Upadesh Undia as Upadi Unavu, adjunct awareness, includes, and primarily it, it refers to our awareness of ourselves as I am this body. That is our, the adjuncts that we, the, the adjuncts that we attribute to ourselves. And, but it also includes our conception of God as another set of adjuncts. In a clear view of God, who is our own real nature, Atmosarupa, there are no adjuncts whatsoever. So in our view, God is all-knowing, all-loving, and all-powerful. But in God's view, even these terms are meaningless, because for him, there is no all other than himself. That is Atmas, what actually exists is only Atmasarupa. So there's not, and since God is Atmasarupa, there is nothing other than him. So there's no all for him to know or to love or to have power over. He alone exists. So if we take all to mean to refer to many things, then for God there are no many things. If we take all to mean the only thing that actually exists, then in that sense, God is all-knowing, because he knows. Because God knows himself, he is always aware of himself as I am. Being aware of himself as I am, that is knowing everything, because there's nothing other than I am. And, of course, he loves himself as I am, so he's all loving. And um, there's nothing other than him to limit his freedom, so he's all powerful. So those, those what these qualities that we, we attribute to God 
They are true in a certain sense, but not in the sense in which we conceive them. God, the real nature of God is beyond the mind. To know God as he actually is, we need to know ourselves as we actually are, because only by knowing ourselves as we actually are can we go beyond the limitations of mental knowledge, mind knowledge. Um, uh, so, so this upadi unavu, adjunct awareness, which is what seemingly separates us from God, exists only in the view of ourself as ego or jiva, and not in the view of God or Aranachala. So, how can we how can we be completely non-different from God, from Aranachala? The prayer, this first Bhagavan is, this first two of Akshara, Bhagavan is praying to be completely non-different. How can we be completely non-different? Only by knowing ourselves as we actually are. And to know ourselves as we actually are, we need to see ourselves without adjuncts. We need to know ourselves without adjuncts. In order to know ourselves without adjuncts, we need to turn our entire attention back within to look at ourselves alone. To the extent to which we do so, ego will thereby dis uh, subside and dissolve back into its source, which is Aranachala. And when we are so keenly self-attentive that we thereby cease to be aware of anything else whatsoever, ego will dissolve completely and forever, thereby merging back into Aranachala as Aranachala. This merging of ego in and as Aranachala and the consequent dissolution of its false awareness of difference or distinction, Veda Bhava, is what Bhagavan uh, implies by the adverbial participle Uttru, which, as I explained above, means joining or uniting. So it's not a real, it, it's a seem, from a perspective of ego, we need to merge back. So we, we need to, the, this merging of ego in its source, in Aranachala, in and as Aranachala, is our uniting with him. But since ego and its seeming separation are not real, its merging back in Aranachala is only seemingly a case of merging or, or uniting. If we look carefully at what seems to be a snake and thereby see that it is just a rope, we can say metaphorically that the snake has merged back into a rope or the snake has united with the rope. But that's just a metaphorical way of saying that the seeming snake has been recognized as a rope. So when we see ourselves as we actually are, we will see that we are Aranachala. So metaphorically, we can say, oh, we've merged back in Aranachala. We have become one with Aranachala. But it's not a case of becoming. It's not even a case of merging. It's a case of just recognizing the truth, but we are always one with Aranachala. Even when the, when the rope seemed to be a snake, it was always actually just a rope. Likewise, even when we seem to be ego, we are actually never anything other than pure awareness, which is Aranachala. So what is called uniting with Aranachala is just recognizing that Aranachala is what we always actually are. If we do not know that the meaning or poral of Arahu and Sundaram, if we do not know that the meaning of Arahu and Sundaram, we may assume that since they are two distinct or separate words, they each have a distinct meaning. 
Uh, but when we come to know they both mean beauty, in our understanding, they will thereby merge together and, and unite as one poral meaning or substance, as they always actually were. That is, so long as we take them to be two di different words, we assume they have two different meanings, so they seem to be separate. When we know that their meaning is one, they merge them. In our understanding, they merge and become one. But they were always one. By the way, even when we didn't understand, even when we didn't recognize that they were two words meaning the same thing, they were, their meaning was always the same. Likewise, so long as we do not know our real substance, uh, our real nature, portal, what is, which is the which is the real substance of God or our natural, we seem to be separate from him. But when we come to know our real substance by turning our entire attention back within to face ourselves alone, thereby withdrawing it from everything else, including all adjuncts, we will thereby merge and unite with our natural as the one poral or real substance that we always actually are. Um, so, uh, I said all this just to explain why Bhagavan talks here about uniting. Um, it's, not a, it's not that we were ever actually separate from our natural, but we seem to be separate so long as we identify ourselves with a certain set of adjuncts. When we, see our, when we know ourselves without adjuncts, we will then know ourselves as our natural because our, we are never anything other than our natural. That is what we always actually are. Um, in these verses of Akshramlai, many of the verses we can interpret in a number of different ways. That is, that is often very different levels of uh, meaning in the same verse. Um, sometimes the, the different meanings we can draw out is simply by interpreting the words in different, in different sense. That is one way we can uh, we can see different meanings in uh, in the verses. Another way we can see different meaning is by splitting the verse differently, because um, in Tamil poetry, like in Sanskrit, words are, 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 are coalesced euphonically. That that is what in, in Sanskrit called sandhi, words joined together. So the the, the the final letter of one verse, one word may merge with the first letter of the next verse. There are so many, in each language, there are different rules of Sandhi. Sanskrit has its own set of rules of Sandhi. Tamil has its own set. So uh, these verses, since they're written in a, in a coalesced form, a euphonically coalesced form, in order to uh, interpret the meaning, we need to split them. We need to do what is called padachetam, to split up the words. And often in Tamil poetry, and also in Sanskrit poetry, but uh, generally in any language that uses Sandhi, it's, there are alternative ways of splitting. So one of the coalesced, uh, or one set of coalesced words in this verse is niyamutru. This can be split in two ways. Either as niyam utru, niyam means you and you, ni means you, um means and in this context. So niyam means and you. And utru, as I explained above, it means joining or uniting. 
but we can also sp split niyam niyamutru as niyam mutru. Mutru means completely. So the main clause of this verse, ahamum niyam niyamutru abhinamai irupom, can be interpreted either as ahamum niyam utru abhinamai irupom, which means may you, I and you uniting be non-different, or we can uh, we can interpret it as ahamum niyum mutru abinamai irupom, uh, in which case the meaning is may I and you be completely non-different. So we can take it. We can take this 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 it either as utru meaning uniting or mutru meaning completely. Since both these meanings are appropriate in this context, we can assume that they are intended to have a double meaning. So we can we can combine the two of them. We can take we can we can extract both meanings and combine them together as may I and you uniting be completely non-different. Um, the word Bhagavan uses for non-different is Abhinam, which is a Tamil form of the Sanskrit uh, term Abhinna, which means uh, Abhinna is the opposite of Binna. Abhinna means not Binna. Binna means divided, separated, split, broken, distinct, different, or other than. That is like uh, Beda, Binna derives from the verb Bid, which means to divide, separate, split, cut into parts, divide, uh, sorry, break, disturb, violate, or uh, distinguish. So uh, a beta and a binna both imply what is not divided, separated, distinct, or different. Therefore, mutru abinam means completely non-different, indivisible, and inseparable, which implies being non-different, completely implies being non-different eternally and in every respect. In other words, what Bhagavan is praying for here is the state of absolute and eternal oneness, aikya, or non-duality, advaita, which is our real and natural state. Um, as he says in the first sentence of the, the seventh paragraph of Nana, yatatamai ulladu, uh, Atma Sarupa Mandre, what actually exists is only Atma Sarupa. Atma Sarupa means the real nature of oneself. Since Atma Sarupa alone is what actually exists, it is the sole reality or substance, Poral or Vastu, of both our natural and ourself. So, what we are praying for here is for the grace of our nature to enable us to be as we always actually are namely as just such it, pure being and pure awareness, I am. Separation and differences are not real. They seem to exist only so long as we look outwards, away from ourselves. And we look outwards, obviously, only so long as we rise as ego. But they all disappear when we turn our entire attention back within to see what we actually are. Therefore, in verse 3 of Anmavide, uh, Bhagavan sings, 
um, he that in this verse he he uses the same uh, the same word abinnam binnam and abinnam, but he uses in this verse vakshamai. What he says in this verse is, um, in the first sentence he says, "Tane aridal indri pinne edu arihil in." That means without knowing oneself. If one knows whatever else, what? What here means in the sense of so what, or or what is the use? What is the use of knowing anything else, or how? What reliability does any other knowledge have if we don't know ourselves? Um, that's the first sentence. The second sentence he says, "Tane arindidil pinne pin enne uludu aria." If one knows oneself, what exists to know? That implies if we know ourselves as we actually are, what else is there to know? Nothing else exists for us to know. Other things seem to exist only when we rise as ego. When we know ourselves as we actually are, there's nothing else for us to know. Then in the next sentence, this is the sentence, main sentence I wanted to refer to because this is the one where he uses the words binna and abinna. Uh, what he says in the next sentence is, "Abinna weigalil, abinna bilaku, enum, enum, atane, tanil unara, minum, tanul anma prakasame." What that means is, when one knows in oneself that self, which is the which is the Abin, the light of abinna, the, the light that shines without separation or without distinction or difference, uh, in all the separate living beings. That is, when we rise as ego and look outwards, we see so many other living beings, both uh, human and non-human. So many living beings we see. All those living beings, in our view, seem to be aware of themselves as I. So that. The light that shines without any division or distinction or separation in all the separate living beings—that is the light of pure awareness, but is ever shining in our heart as I am. So, that's a very, very beautiful description. He says, when one knows in oneself that self, which is the light that shines without any separation. In other words, he's referring to the light of pure awareness. Uh, and it shines in all separate living beings within oneself. Atma prakasa uh, will flash forth. Um, Atma prakasa means the shining clarity or light of oneself. So the Atma prakasa is that same light, but he refers to as the abhinna vilaku, the, the light that has the, the the light that is devoid of any separation or distinction or differences. That that upmark pakasa will flash forth. The verb he uses here for flash forth is minnam, which is the same word, but is same uh, uh, minnal means uh, lightning, the flashing. So it, 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 the implication here is that like like a flash of lightning, that our the light of pure awareness, the light of, that is our own real nature, will shine forth like lightning. And then he goes on to say, um, "Aro vilasame." This is 
that that is this is is not there, but it implies that this is Arul Vilasa, the shining forth or amorous play or beauty of grace. Arul means grace. Vilasa means can mean shining forth. It can mean amorous play, like the play between lovers, and it can also mean beauty. Um, so it's the Arul Vilasa. It's Ahavinasa. Ahavinasa means the annihilation of ego, and finally. Imba Vikasa, it is the blossoming of, of happiness. And therefore, therefore that, that is this part of the song Arna Vijay. So each verse concludes with the, with the refrain, which means, ah, extremely easy. Atma Vidya, or knowing ourselves is ah, extremely easy. That is, so long as we look outwards, we are aware of the semi existence of separation and differences. We know ourselves as the subject or knower, and so many other things as knower. So the primary separation is between subject and objects. And further separation appears among objects, because each object is separate from each, every other object. Since we're aware of ourselves as a living being, we see so many other living beings, uh, separate living beings. This is what Bhagavan refers to in this verse as Binna Weagal. Uh, separate living beings. But the one light of awareness that shines in all those living beings as I am is only oneself. So since we can never be separate from ourselves, Bhagavan describes this light of awareness which shines within each one of us as I am as a binna bilaku, the undivided light of a light without separation. This undivided light of pure awareness which always shines within us as I am, this is our natural. And when we know it within ourselves by turning our entire attention back within to face ourselves alone, it will shine forth as Atma Pakasa, a shining clarity or light of oneself, thereby dissolving our, seeming, our seemingly separate existence within itself as Mutru Abhinam, completely non-different, indivisible, and inseparable. This is therefore what Bhagavan is praying for in the second verse of Aksharamulai. Arahusan Dharambol Ahamum Niyum Mutru Abhinamai Irupom Arunachala. Arunachala, like Arahu and Sundaram, may you and I be completely non-different, indivisible and inseparable. Um, this state in which Arunachya has shone forth within us as Atmarapakasa, the indivisible light of pure awareness, our own real nature, and in which he and we therefore remain as Mutru Abhinam, completely non-different, is Aral Vilasam, the shining forth or beauty of grace. Because the real nature or true beauty of grace can be known by us only when we have been swallowed by it entirely. This state is also ahavinasam, the, uh, the complete and utter annihilation or eradication of ego, because by shining within us as atmarpakasha, our nature devours us completely, leaving not even the slightest trace of any binawir or separate life, soul, or individuality. And since Aranach is the fullness of infinite happiness, he's shining forth within us as Atma Pakasa, 
is Imba Bikasa, the blossoming of happiness. So this is what Bhagavan is praying for in this verse. Um, finally, I explained all the words in the verse, and finally I come to this last word, Irupom, or the last word before Aranachala. Irupom is the first person plural uh, future tense of Iru, which means to be. So it literally means we will be. But in this context, we can take it as implying irupomaha, uh, which means may we be. That is often, if you want to say in Tamil, may we be, you'd say irupomaha. But often in poetry, it'll be said more in a more compact way, simply as irupom. So this word irupom can be taken to mean either may we be or we will be. So this, this verse is both a prayer and, and a statement of fact. So um, I, because we, I'm interpreting this, this, these verses from the perspective of ourself as the devotee, it's from, from our perspective, it's appropriate to take this verse as a prayer. So we take irupom to mean irupomaha, may we be. But this verse also, we can take it also more literally because this is Bhagavan after all who is singing this verse. So we can take it, we can interpret it more literally. Um, uh, so uh, in, in which case, irupom means we will be. However, in um, the what we generally call the future tense, it can be more accurately described as the predictive tense. For example, I mean, even in English, we often use the future tense to refer to something present. Um, uh, if, if, um, if someone asks, where is such and such a person? We can look at our watch and say, oh, it's now 10.30, he'll be there. Meaning we, 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 are, we are predicting something that is present because we don't have a direct knowledge of the fact that he is in such and such a place. Like we know that normally he'll be, he's in his office from 9 till 12 o'clock in the morning. So since it's 10.30, he will be in his office. So we are not actually using the future tense as a future tense. We're using it as a predictive tense. So likewise in Tamil, the future tense, it's more useful to consider it as the predictive tense. And because it is the predictive tense, it's often used in Tamil to express what is predictably, typically, habitually, or constantly the case. So in Tamil, the so-called future tense often serves as a continuous form of the present tense. So often it, the future tense is used in Tamil, whereas in, where in English we'd normally use the present tense because it implies what is and always will be the case. Therefore, in this context, irupom implies not only may we be, but also we will be. And it also means we, we, we will be, it also means we are. And it implies we will always be or we always are. So an alternative meaning of this verse, Arahusan Darambol Ahamum Niyum Trabinama Irupom Aranachala is Aranachala, like Arahu and Sundaram. I and you 
will always be or always are completely non-different. That is, in this verse, Bhagavan implies that he and Aranachala are, always have been, and always will be, mutru abhinam, completely non-different and inseparable. So if anyone has any doubt about whether Bhagavan and Aranachala are one and the same, we can point to this verse and say, see, Bhagavan has, has himself has said here, he has addressed Aranachala and said, I and you are completely non-different, like Arahu and Sundaram. Um, in other words, Arunachala and Bhagavan are eternally, immutably, and indivisibly one. They are always non-separate. Therefore, though for us this verse serves as an extremely appropriate prayer for inseparable oneness with Arunachala, it is also a de declaration by Bhagavan of his real and eternal state of oneness or Aikya with Arunachala. Moreover, when we read this along with the previous verse, that is in the previous verse, he said, Arunachala, you will eradicate the ego of those who meditate on you in the heart as I. Uh, this verse also implies that when the ego that was aware of itself as I am Venkaraman, son of Arahu and Sundaram, thought of Arunachala as I, deep within its heart, it was thereby eradicated by his grace. And by eradicating it, Arunachala revealed the eternal truth of Jiva Brahmaikya, the ever inseparable oneness of Jiva and Brahman. In other words, what Bhagavan implies in these two uh, verses is that by eradicating ego in the 16-year-old Venkaraman, Arunachya revealed to him that they were always one and mutu abhinam, completely non-different and inseparable. So from the moment that, that, of that, that, that death experience occurred and that when the ego was eradicated by the light of pure awareness that shone forth in the heart, that light of pure awareness was Arunachala. So what was shining through the human form of Bhagavan uh, from then onwards was Arunachala Shiva himself. So they, Bhagavan and Arunachala always mutru abhinam, completely non-different and inseparable. Um, and, as Saduam pointed out, Arahu Sundarambol, like Arahu and Sundaram, is more apt than other analogies that are, that are frequently used in devotional literature to describe the closeness and intimacy of God and soul such as like flower and fragrance, or like moon and coolness. Because though each of these is a pair of closely associated things, they're neither identical nor inseparable, since there can be fragrance without a flower and coolness without the moon. Whereas Arahu and Sundaram are identical and inseparable in meaning. Therefore, by using this analogy, Bhagavan implies that though on the surface, Akshramlai may seem to be a song expressing Anya Bhakti or love for God as other one, oneself, which entails duality. That is, seemingly, Bhagavan is praying to an outward form, the form of Arunachala. So it seems to be, uh, viewed superficially, it seems to be Anya Bhakti. 
But the underlying import of Akshram Lai is actually Ananya Bhakti, love for God as nothing other than oneself, which is devoid of duality. Um, so this, 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 uh, this analogy, Bhagavan, I, I, as far as I'm aware, such an analogy has never been used in any devotional literature anywhere in the world. Bhagavan has chosen two words, a Tamil word and a Sanskrit word, which also happen to be the names of his parents. And these two words have identical meaning. So the, the, that is why he, he prays to be completely non-different, just like these two words are completely non-different. The, the words differ in their sound and their, and their, uh, 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 and their form. Inwardly, their substance is one, just like the substance of our natural and Bhagavan is one. And just like our substance and the substance of Bhagavan is one. Um, uh, moreover, beauty is, a more is more abstract and subjective, whereas flower and fragrance and moon and coolness are more concrete and objective. So this analogy reminds us that the true import of this love song is extremely deep, subtle, and inward. So we can, we can read Akshramlai and understand the surface meaning, but we don't understand the meaning without, without going deep into the meaning of every word and considering all the, the shades of meaning, all the levels of meaning that Bhagavan has embedded in this uh, this beautiful, beautiful love song. Of course, Bhagavan didn't do this with any, with any intention or any mental activity on his part. This, these, these verses of Akshramla just wells, welled forth from his heart in a spontaneous flow, uh, outpouring of love. But because it came from the original source, the source of, of, of but in the real nature of Bhagavan, the real nature of Varanachala, these, these verses are, are pregnant with so much deep and rich meaning. And we can be meditating on these verses for many, many years and still uh, seeing more depth of meaning in them. They're so, such wonderful, wonderful verses. So um, the fact that... Uh, Bhagavan used this very apt analogy, referring to not to something concrete. He could have chosen two words that meant he could have chosen, um, for example, he could have chosen a word um, in Sanskrit that means tree and a word in Tamil that means tree. But no, he didn't choose any concrete object. He chose beauty. Beauty is, an ex is extremely abstract and subjective. That is, they say, beauty is in the behold, eye of the beholder. So what one person considers beautiful, another person may not consider beautiful. So it's entirely abstract and, um, and uh, a subjective quality. So why he chose words that, referred, that mean beauty, but referred to such as abstract and subjective quality, because he's, he's, he's reminding us that this... this there's far more depth of meaning in these verses than may initially appear on the surface. The more we think about it, the deeper the meaning we can discover in these verses. Um, another point worth considering here, 
though as his devotees, we all see beauty in the physical forms of Arunachala and Bhagavan. For example, if we look at, if we look at a, a picture of Bhagavan's eye, of Bhagavan, we see such love in his eyes. We also see so much beauty in the form of Arunachala. But the beauty he's alluding to here is not just the outward beauty of their physical forms, but the inner beauty of their real substance, their poral or vastu, uh, namely Atmaswarupa, because their physical forms are binna, distinct or different from each other. That is, the outward appearance is different, whereas their real form, Swarupa, is mutru abhinam, completely non-different. So long as we look outwards, away from ourselves, we cannot avoid seeing differences. So we can see non-difference only by looking deep within to see the real nature of ourself, Atmasarupa. The beauty of non-difference that we will see by looking deep within ourselves to see ourselves as we actually are, alone is real beauty. If I remember correctly, there's a verse in Guruvachaka Kovai in which Bhagavan says something to the effect of you who seek beauty outside, look within and see the real beauty that is there. It's not wouldn't be exactly those words, but something to that effect, Bhagavan is saying. The real beauty is the beauty of our own real nature, the beauty of Satchitananda. So all other forms of beauty merge and become completely non-different in that. So rather than seeking beauty outside, we need to seek beauty in our own heart. Um, as in many of the verses of Akshramlai, in this verse, there is an underlying allusion to the Nayaka Nayaki Baba, that is the devotional attitude of a young maiden who yearns cravingly for the Lord who has attracted and stolen her heart. That is, Arahu, being the name of Bhagavan's mother, is an allusion to the young maiden, Nayaki, the devotee or jiva, who is referred to here as Aham, I. Whereas Sundaram, being the name of his father, is an allusion to a devotee's beloved lord, Nayaka, God or Shiva, who is referred to here as Ni, you. The devotee's heart has been stolen by her beloved lord, Arunachala, so she prays to be united with him in eternal and indivisible oneness, the state in which they are mutru abhinam, completely non-different. This state of complete and indivisible oneness with Arunachala is the akshara manam, the imperishable marriage for which the devotee is praying in this love song. And being united with him in this state is both the celebration and the consummation of this divine marriage. Um, so, so that when we think about these verses, there's so many different levels of meaning, so many different um, perspectives from which we can see the same verse. Um, moreover, Arahu and Sundaram are the names of his mother and father, respectively. So this verse is also a very, a very apt tribute to them and to the harmony of their marriage. Because by comparing the state of indivisible oneness with Arunachala, for which he was praying in this verse, to the happy and harmonious union of his parents, he implies that though they were different in their outward forms, they were united with one in their thoughts and heart. 
and he, there are two other verses in which Bhagavan refers to his parents and a fitting tribute. So I'll just briefly go through these two verses. This is verses eight and nine of Arunachala Nabamani Malai. Um, uh, in the meaning of uh, verse eight is um, in Churi, that means in Tiruchuri, the town where Bhagavan was born, um, which among the towns of God, in other words, among the Shiva Kshetras in the world is called the surging place. The reason it's called the surging place is there's a, a tank, in the, the main temple tank in the month of Masi every year, the water rises up. Um, the exact reason for it is not known, but it's, uh, it's connected with the Puranic story of why, why it is so. And Bhagavan, in later years, when he was asked about this, is it true that the water in that tank rises up? He said, yes, as children, we used to observe it every year. We, we, we would cover, carefully observe and see the water rise. But, uh, where the water was one day, the next day it would be higher. So it was. Um, it, it happened every year, Bhagavan said. Um, so in that in that in Tiruchuri, that holy town of Shiva, where the where the water rises every year, I was born to the uh, virtuous ascetic Sundaran. That is, he refers to his father as um, wait a second, sorry, it's a it's a, it's a very difficult verse, this. Yes, punian. Punian means virtuous. So he's referring to his father as virtuous and tabaku as an ascetic. Um, so to the virtuous ascetic, Sundaram, and to uh, 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 Sundaram Satiku, to his, to, his, uh, to his faithful wife, Sati means a faithful wife, uh, Sundaram. That is, he's Sundaran with an N on the end. It is a personal form. So he's referring to his father as Sundaran, and he's referring to his mother as Sundaram. Um, of course, uh, she was always known as Arahu, but that's a but the Sanskrit equivalent of Arahu is Sundaram. So he refers to his father as Sundaran and his mother as Sundaram. Um, so I was born to this virtuous ascetic Sundaram and to his faithful wife uh, Sundaram, Arahu. And then he goes on to say, there's a story behind why Bhagavan wrote this verse. It, it, he wrote it, um, it's a traditional thing of if a, in ancient times, if a Tamil poet was given a gift by a king, some who were a king who they used to be patrons of the poets. So the, the poet would then praise the king, saying, I, um, I was born of, in such and such a place of such and such parents, and they, such and such a great uh, king gave me such and such a gift. So in this verse, Bhagavan is, is first he identifies uh, where he was born and to whom he was born. And then he he praises the, the great philanthropist uh, who gave him the supreme gift. So he says, the red hill god, that means god in the form of a red hill, namely Arunachala, who appears in the world so that Chinmayam glows. Chinmayam means that which is composed of pure awareness. So so that Chinmaya glows. That implies so that Chinmaya glows so brightly that it swallows everything else in its infinite, infinitely clear light. And so that Tanmayan, 
Tanmaya means that which is composed of that. Tat means refers to Brahman, uh, flourishes. So, but in other words, so but it flourishes implies so that it shines as one without a second. So uh, our, he says here, what is the what is the purpose of our nature? Our nature appears in this world so that Chimmayam may glow and so that Tanmayam may flourish. Chimmayam and Tanmayam, of course, refer to the same thing. Um, because that uh, the chit is itself Brahman, uh, who is referred to as Tat. Um, so that Lord, that great hill Lord, gave me his state, his heart overflowing with joy, so that the miserable distress of my life lived in the uh, wickedness of the vile senses in the world perishes. And then in the next verse, verse 9 of uh, Arunachya Navamani Malai, Bhagavan says, Ammayam appanam ai enei bhumiyal akialitu. That means bearing and tending me in the world as mother and father. The implication here is that it's Arunachya himself who, in the form of Bhagavan's mother and father, bore him and tend and and bore, bore him and tended for him and, and, and raised him. Um, so bearing and tending me in the form of, um, of uh, in the world as my mother and father, Ammahimaye in our cuddle vindidum yan andidumun. Before I sank, falling in the great, in the deep ocean, namely that worldly Maya, the, the worldly Maya he's referring to here is the delusion of being a mother and father. Of course, being a mother and father is not in itself wrong, but if we, uh, the problem is if we have that abhimanam, if we feel I am a mother, I am a father, that is the Maya, that that. False identification, I am this or I am that, that is the worldly Maya. So before I sank in the deep ocean, namely that worldly Maya, Enmanam Manni Irtu Unpadatil Irutteneal, entering my mind and drawing me, you fixed me at your feet uh, in your, or in your state. Um, Chinmayanam Arunachala Ninnaral Chitrame Arunachala, who are Chinmayan, one oh, oh, fixed at your feet. That Padam, Padam means both feet and also state. So, Umpadatil Irutteneyal can mean either you fix me in your, at your feet or you fix me in your state. It has both meanings, um, because the feature of our nature is his state, but it amounts to the same. Arunachala ninnarul chitram ennei. Arunachala who are chinmayan, one who is composed of pure awareness, what a wonder of your grace this is. Um, here, what Bhagavan is uh, saying in this, um, in this uh, when he says, en Enmana manni irutu umpadatil irutteneyal. 
entering my mind and drawing me, you fix me at your feet. He says exactly the same in the next verse of Aksharamlai. What he says in the next verse of Aksharamlai is, um, we, we'll talk about this next time, uh, entering my mind or home, um, forcibly carrying me away, or dragging me out, you have been, you have uh, kept me a prisoner in the, or you kept me captive in the cave of your heart. What a wonder of your grace this is. So what he says in the very next verse of Akram is the same that he is saying in the, in the last two lines of this, uh, of this uh, verse of, uh, of Aranacha Nabamani Malai, the last verse of Aranacha Nabamani Malai. So, so, all these verses, the second verse of Aksharamlai and these last two verses of Mani Malai, they're all a very fitting tribute to, these, to his parents. Because it is only from such a happy and harmonious union of two such pure souls as his parents, only in such a, from such a happy marriage can Aranacha have taken birth in human form as Bhagavan Ramana, our Sadguru and Saviour. So the tribute he pays to them in these verses is very apt. Uh, finally, there's one other point about these verses, about this second verse of Akshram, right? But it's pointed out by both Murugana and Sadhuam. Uh, that is, they both point out that in this verse, Bhagavan also implies the harmony and inner oneness of Sanskrit and Tamil. That is, unfortunately, um, due to the vagaries of history, there has, in recent, in the last couple of hundred years, there's been a certain tension between Tamil and Sanskrit. The reason being that during the, the time of British rule in India, they, were, they introduced a, an education policy, that is a, a British administrator called Lord Macaulay, introduced an, an education policy in India in the 1830s. And according to that education, that is the aim of the British was they wanted to, uh, to, uh, to educate a generation of Indians who would who could be who would serve under them as civil servants to run because they're having 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 captured such a vast country as India and controlling it with just a, uh, a, um, a small army and a small number of men they needed they needed Indians uh, to work under the British rule so they introduced this education policy according to this policy the um, at all schools had to be English medium schools. So the, the, the students had to learn English and one other language. So they could choose either their mother tongue or Sanskrit. So in Tamil Nadu, what happened is the majority of Brahmins opted to study Sanskrit and the majority of non-Brahmins opted to study Sans Tamil. So whereas previously, any anyone any educated person in Tamil Nadu would have studied both Tamil and Sanskrit, so they they would they could read 
Tamil literature and Sanskrit literature, which is why Tamil literature is so rich with Sanskrit words and um, and many of the great classics of Sanskrit literature have been translated into Tamil. Um, so there was there was so much harmony and between these two languages uh, before the 1830s. Afterwards, this was part of the British divide and rule policy. The, the result of it was those who adopted to study Sanskrit at school, namely most of the Brahmins, could no longer read literary Tamil. They could speak Tamil, but they were not familiar with literary Tamil. So, for example, when Lakshman Sharma first came to Bhagavan, he was, he's a Tamilian, so he knows Tamil, he, he, he speaks Tamil, um, it's his mother tongue. But when Bhagavan asked him, have you read Uludunapadu? He, he, his answer to Bhagavan was, no, Bhagavan, I'm a Sanskrit student. I'm not able to understand the, the, the classical Tamil. And then he asked Bhagavan, he took the opportunity and he said, but if Bhagavan would like to teach me, I would like to study it. So he was then very fortunate to be taught the meaning of Uludunapadu uh, by Bhagavan. Um, but so many, many people who, who knew Sanskrit well didn't know Tamil. And people who knew Tamil well didn't know Sanskrit. Um, that was an unfortunate thing. So that that resulted in a certain tension between the two. Um, those who knew Sanskrit looked down on those who only knew Tamil. Those who knew Tamil, they thought their Tamil is superior to the Sanskrit. All these sort of um, differences arose. So what Murugana and Bhagavan and, and Sadhuan point out here is that by using these two words, Arohu and Sundaram, Bhagavan is implying that harmony and inner oneness of Tamil and Sanskrit, because uh, Arahu and Sandram, they, they, we can take them as metaphors, because they're respectively ta a Tamil word and a Sanskrit word with the same meaning. So Arahu is a, a metaphor for Tamil, and Sundram is a metaphor for Sanskrit. So they, Bhagavan is implying the, the, inner, uh, the inner oneness and harmony of the two languages. Um, and uh, but, but why Bhagavan does so? Because both these languages, both are divine languages, and both are dear to the heart of God. Because Shiva, Vishnu, and other forms of God have been praised by saints in heart-melting verses in both these languages. So there, there are some people who've studied Sanskrit who've said, oh, Sanskrit is Deva Bhasha, it's the divine language. Yes, it's true, Sanskrit is a divine language, but that doesn't mean that other languages are not also divine languages. So Bhagavan, Bhagavan is very impartial, so he points out the harmony of both. Um, so though these two languages differ in form and appearance, and though each of them has its own unique qualities, they are each an apt medium for expressing both bhakti and jnana, as Bhagavan himself has demonstrated in his own poetry in both languages. Um, that is, in most of Bhagavan's works, uh, he wrote in Tamil, but he has also written uh, one work of jnana in, uh, in Sanskrit, namely Upadesha Saraha, and in uh, uh, Arunacha Pancharatnam, he first composed in Sanskrit and later translated in Tamil. So Bhagavan has demonstrated this. But, 
that both these languages are fit mediums for expressing both bhakti and jnana. And Bhagavan is the embodiment of both bhakti and jnana. Um, <clears throat> and Sadhuam also points out that Bhagavan gives no room here for anyone to claim that he implied that either language was superior to the other. Because though he used the Tamil word arahu to refer to the devotee or jiva, and the Sanskrit word sundaram to refer to guru or shiva, so some people could say, oh, see, Bhagavan has used, uh, God is superior to Jiva, therefore Sanskrit is superior to Tamil, they could say. But then he uses the Sanskrit pronoun aham to refer to the devotee or Jiva, and the Tamil pronoun ni to refer to Guru or Shiva, such as his perfect impartiality. Just as he views these two languages with such flawless impartiality, he views all languages, religions, races, nationalities, people, species, and everything else with the same impartiality, because his state is mutuabinam, completely devoid of even the slightest trace of any division, separation, distinction, or otherness. That is, Bhagavan, Bhagavan treated all people, whether they were rich or poor, whether they were maharajas or villagers, whether they were educated or uneducated, whether they were so, so many very learned pundits came to him, and so many illiterate villagers came to him. He treated all exactly the same. And not only people, he treated all species the same. He showed the same love for the monkeys and the dogs and the cows and all creatures, even the, the scorpions and the snakes and the hornets that stung, stung him. He treated all with the same impartial love because he sees all as himself. That is, since he is Ulaporul, the existing or sadvastu, the one real substance, which, though indivisible and immutable, is what appears in ego, in the view of ego, as all multiplicity and diversity, uh, differences and distinctions. Uh, that is, he is the one, the, the one I am, the one common factor in all, in all uh, beings, in all, in, in all forms, in all, everything that is manifest. He is the one substance of everything. So he, he sees everything as himself and he loves everything as himself. So Bhagavan was perfectly impartial in his treatment of languages, religions, uh, people, whatever their race, whatever their caste, whatever their nationality, whatever. Bhagavan treated all equally. Uh, for example, uh, religion, Bhagavan was treated people of all religions with the same impartiality. And he would speak to people in the language of their own religion. For example, when Christians came, or he, would, he would refer to the Bible. He would point out that in the Bible, the name of God is I am. And that Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And that Jesus said, no, you uh, look, see, the kingdom of God is within you. So he would point out things in Christianity that are in accordance with his teachings. And on one occasion, there was a, there was a, um, there was an 
All India Conference of uh, Islamic Scholars, and they happened to hold it one year in Tiruvannamalai. So after their after their conference was over, they came to visit um, Bhagavan, and these are all very learned um, uh, uh, Muslim scholars. So they came to Bhagavan, and one of them asked him. Uh, uh, Swami, in the, um, what is the one goal of all religions? Bhagavan said, Salam. Salam means peace. And then they said, and what is the way to attain that goal? He said, Islam. Islam means surrender. So he expressed his own teachings, but in the language of their own religion. So Bhagavan was impartial to every, he He saw the same in everything. He saw the same, um, the same good in the same, the same truth in everyone, and, and the same truth in all religions. Likewise, um, among Hindus, many um, Bhagavan outwardly he may seem to be a Shaivite. He sang in praise of Varanachala. So he seems to be a Shiva Bhakta. But so many devotees who came to him, they were very staunch Vaishnavas. So Bhagavan uh, would often refer to the uh, Narlaira Divya Prabandham, the, the songs of the Alwas, the great Vaishnavite saints, whose uh, songs are the basis of the Bhakti movement, but later spread throughout India. So he Bhagavan knew all those songs and he would he would refer to those songs and he would often point out the verses that where there's a clear Advaitic import in them. So to, in that way he would bridge the gap, he would he would bridge over all differences and um, let people see what is the truth in all religions and in all um, so Bhagavan was so completely impartial. So this verse is a very nice illustration of that, how he was impartial in his view of Tamil and Sanskrit. Of course, Bhagavan had a very special love for Tamil. Most of his poetry was in Tamil, but he would never, uh, he would never tolerate people saying that Tamil is superior to Sanskrit or that Sanskrit is superior to Tamil. All are equal in his eyes. Um, and even, even us, even though we are so, we are so low, uh, I mean, however unworthy we may be, he is equally gracious to all of us. So this is a great consolation to us. We may feel that we are very imperfect. We are unfit for his grace or anything. There is no such, nobody can be unfit for Bhagavan's grace because his grace is uncaused grace. His grace is, because his very nature is grace. Grace is the infinite love, but he has for each one of us as himself, because he sees us as himself, he loves us as himself. So his infinite love for us as himself is what manifests as his grace. So his grace is his own real nature. It has no cause. So there's no, no one can be worthy of his grace, but nobody can be unfit for his grace. His grace is equal to all. So this is a very great consolation to us. Uh, however unworthy we may feel ourselves to be, he has chosen to uh, take residence in our heart and shine in our heart eternally as I am. So nobody is unfit. If we, if, if we want to know him and to be him as we actually are, 
he has shown us the way. All we need to do is to turn our attention back within and see him, to see him ever shining in our heart as I am. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arunachala Ramanaya. <laughs>